good morning. It's good to see you all today and uh, want to welcome the folks that are joining us online as well. Um, none of these people are going to be eating potato chips, so I don't want any of you eating potato chips either during this message. That's only fair, right? James? Is that Right. Okay. You're with me. Okay. Not me, on them, the people at home. <laughs> well, we're glad that you're here today. We're getting news that the first winter storm is coming in, not here necessarily, but into the Rockies and all of this. And uh, um, for some of us, it's like we sigh. Others in here, honestly, they get all chipper because they like snow. So uh, it'll come soon enough, though. So I'm not ready to put my motorcycle away for the winter. This week, I decided to uh, do a little search. I Googled uh, this question, typed in, how many commands are in the Bible? And, uh, and I was fully expecting to pursue, you know, um, knowing how many there was in the Bible as a whole. But I was finding that the majority of the responses was centering on the New Testament. So I decided to go with that. Regarding the New Testament, uh, this was a consistent number that kept coming up. I didn't go through and count to verify this, but 1,050 commands in the New Testament. That's a lot of commands. The thing is that some of those are duplicates. They're repeated. And so when you replace the duplicate or you remove the duplicates, you end up with a total of approximately 800 commands that are in the New Testament. Today we're going to take one of those commands and we're going to focus our attention on that. And it's one of what perhaps represents the hardest of all commands. Now, I know that's subject to, to opinion, but, uh, but I think in many respects for a number of people, this is the hardest command of all. It's actually kind of funny, you know, when you think about it. On paper, we don't have any problem with this particular command that we're going to be talking about. As a matter of fact, we kind of like it. As a matter of principle, we have no issue with this command. We like the sound of it. But when it comes to practice, it can be an entirely different matter. What is the command? It's the command. It's found in a variety of forms because it certainly is duplicated multiple times. But uh, it's the command to forgive. To forgive others. It has relevance to all of us because the truth of the matter is we all have been hurt at some point in time or another. In fact, some that are in here or watching online have been hurt deeply, sharply. Perhaps it was someone close to you. Perhaps it involved a spouse whether it be a present spouse or maybe it was a spouse from the past. You know, the thing for marriage to be what marriage can be and ought to be, um, the thing we got to do is we kind of got to lower the walls, right? We need to make ourselves vulnerable to our mate. 
And if you're really wanting to um, develop the kind of intimacy and closeness that God designed for there to be in marriage, you need to do that. But there is a risk involved with that. You make yourself vulnerable. And so some of the deepest of wounds happen right there in the marriage uh, for some people where they're betrayed. And so maybe you're here today and this is the thing where you've been hurt deeply and it came from a spouse. Or maybe uh, you're here and it had something to do with your work, maybe a business partner that that you were working with and there were some things going on under the table that you were not aware of. And by the time you became aware of it, it was too late. The business went belly up. And you've been struggling ever since that time to get your feet underneath you again. And yeah, and you just haven't been able to. And so maybe that's the hurt that some have experienced. Others of you in here, maybe it's something that you um, experienced when you were growing up. Some form of abuse. It could be a bully. It could be sharp words that you heard from a parent. Or it could actually be physical abuse. And maybe that's the hurt. Others, maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was somebody who um, engaged in gossip, slander, and really did a number to your reputation. And with a a certain circle of acquaintances, your reputation has never been the same since then because of the damage that they did. Yeah, there's a, that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's a variety of different possibilities as far as the kind of hurt that we may have experienced in the, in the past. And the thing is that sooner or later, we all come to the conclusion uh, that time does not heal all wounds. Well, just give it time and you'll get over it. Sometimes maybe we're a bit naive when we're young and thinking that that will be the way that it'll work, but uh, we discover as time passes that time does not heal all wounds. Forgiving others can be one of the toughest things that we're commanded to do in the Bible. There's nothing easy about it. And I know what the title of today's message is. I'm the one that chose the title of this message, but it was intentionally kind of misleading because... Um, the opposite is true. It can be a challenge. It can kind of be an uphill climb to really forgive someone else who has wronged us deeply. You see, when we have been wronged, you're faced with a choice. Any of the scenarios I listed a moment ago or a host of other possibilities, when you have been wronged, you have a choice that you need to make. You can hold on to it or you can let go of it. That's basically the crux of the, of the choice that you're faced with. You can hold on to it or you can let go of it. People that choose to hold on to it have ways of keeping all that emotion alive, all that negative emotion, you know, regarding how hurt you are. And, and the basic way that they keep it alive is they feed it. But there's more than one way to feed all that emotion. One way is to replay it over and over in your mind. 
is to replay the sequence of events, whatever it is that happens, so that it remains vivid in your mind even 12 months later, even 12 years later, even 30 or 40 years later. As long as you keep replaying it in your mind, it'll remain vivid. So that's one way. Of holding on to it. Another way to hold on to it is talking about it whenever you get the chance to talk about it. You know, if it involved a neighbor and something that a neighbor did that really hurt you, then uh, when you're out and about, whether it's checking the mail or mowing your yard and some other neighbor is chatting with you and so and so's name comes up, you have an opportunity to talk about it. And to say, oh, yeah, well, I wouldn't trust so-and-so. Oh, really? Why? There you go. The door swung wide open. And now you can talk about it. And you can kind of relive it all by sharing it with someone else. And then especially if they nod their head and they're like, oh, yeah, that's wrong. That's bad. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Then all of a sudden you're getting affirmation for feeling the way that you are. And sometimes that's exactly what you're seeking at the time. Another way that we hold on to it and we feed it is just simply by dwelling on it. Wake up at 1.30 in the morning, you can't sleep, and for whatever crazy reason, your mind all of a sudden starts thinking about that situation, you know, where you were betrayed, where you were hurt. And so that's what you reflect on until you go to sleep again. Or maybe you're eating lunch at work and, and uh, no one else at work is eating with you at the time. So as you take your sandwich out and you're eating it, um, your mind just is kind of free to go wherever and guess where it goes. And it's rehashing all of that again. To say it another way, one of the ways or some of the ways that we hold on to it when we're hurt is we nurse it, we rehearse it, and we converse it. And all of those are going to drive it home deeper and deeper. But people who choose to let go of it, they're the ones who end up experiencing freedom. They're the ones who, who rediscover joy that perhaps has leaked out of their life. Because when you, when you harbor hard feelings, when you nurse a grudge against someone else, uh, little by little, it's going to end up stealing your joy. Sometimes it's not that noticeable, but eventually you're going to end up in a place that is a far cry from where you were before you now perhaps will end up lacking the ability to experience peace deep down inside because everything's all tense and tied up in knots because of so-and-so. It's their fault. They're the one that did this. They're the ones that ruined your life. People that hang on to hard feelings, it has a way of poisoning their spirit because it kind of permeates their entire being. The book of Hebrews talks about bitterness, and it uses the phrase, the root of bitterness. Some of you have been homeowners long enough to know that tree roots sometimes are a real headache. Because as they spread, they get into other things, and they damage things. I can remember, you know, dad having to deal with that 
because, you know, we were out in the country, septic tank, laterals and all this in the front yard, and we had this tree that wasn't so big initially, but it became a very big tree, and of course that meant there was a lot of roots, and he had a lot of problems with the septic system because of that. The root of bitterness. Yeah, when we nurse a, a grudge, when we hold on to hard feelings because someone has wronged us, it's not going to stay put in that one little corner of your mind. It's going to spread, and it's going to, it's going to poison your very spirit. It alters the way that you see everything. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's why over and over and over again, we see instructions in the New Testament. We see commands about forgiveness. And, and here's, here's a very clear one. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, bear with each other. Now, if, if you're going to look in some translations, it, it'll, just, it'll say that first phrase this way. Put up with one another. Cut each other a little slack. That's the idea here. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's your inspiration. But again, the ultimate command that is found in that passage is that we are to forgive. That's, again, far from being the only place that is found in the New Testament, another very notable place is in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that many, many in this room have prayed many times. In the past, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, where's that prayer end up going? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's just another way of saying, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Years ago, I shared a message and I had the title on the message, The Most Dangerous Prayer You Can Pray. I mean, because basically in the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to treat us when we sin against him. We're asking him to treat us the way we treat other people who have wronged us. And if we're not handling that very well, think about what we're asking God to do. Yeah. So there's a lot of scripture that talks about this subject of forgiveness but the whole idea overall of letting go seems to run counter to our inclinations because so oftentimes our emotions are what determine our course of action, whether we're intentional about doing this or not. Our emotions have a way of finding their way into the driver's seat of our life, kind of calling the shots. And our emotions, boy, they don't like it when we've been hurt, when we've been wronged. And the whole idea of forgiving someone who has wronged us, it feels like if we forgive them, we are letting them off the hook. And that's not right. They don't deserve to be let off the hook. Our emotions tell us that if we forgive them, it's like saying it wasn't really that big of a deal what they did to us. And deep down inside, we don't feel that way. We think it was a big deal. Our emotions tell us that when we're forgiving someone, it feels like we're sending a message of condoning their behavior. And we don't want to send that message out there. 
that it was okay what they did. But that's what our emotions are saying. If you forgive them, that's what you're communicating. Our emotions tell us that if we forgive someone, then in the very least, what we are doing is we are minimizing their offense. And we don't want to minimize it because it's caused too much damage within our life. So we don't want to minimize it. If anything, we want to err on maximizing it, you know, by them being miserable. So, so how do we forgive? Since some of our natural inclinations, some of our base instinct kind of goes a different direction, how do we forgive when everything within us is crying out for revenge? Well, that's what we're going to break down today. I've got three suggestions that I want to give, and uh, I think all of these are biblically based. And the very first one I'm going to share uh, without any doubt whatsoever, uh, this is a biblical principle because Jesus taught it in a variety of ways, but he kept telling these stories and it kept bringing home the similar thought. We need to start with recognizing that we, each of us, each of you, are sinners in need of forgiveness too. This is where it starts, is recognizing that we have messed up, that we have sinned. When we feel offended, we are, we are naturally hurt, and all of the attention is on the wrong that the other party engaged in. We don't think a whole lot about ourselves other than the way that we've been hurt. But otherwise, we're, we're uh, focused on the shortcomings of the other person. But the truth of the matter is, neither they nor ourselves are blameless before God. One of the passages where Jesus drives this home is found in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus has some of the religious leaders bring a woman before him. Talking about the first 11 verses or so of that chapter. They bring a woman who has been caught in adultery. And they explain to Jesus that Moses' law makes it very clear that such a woman is to be stoned. But while they're explaining all this, they see Jesus kind of lean over or squat, bend down, take a knee, whatever. They see Jesus go down and he starts writing with his finger in the dirt. Which is kind of a notable thing because we're not given any explanation on it. And it's actually found twice in that passage that Jesus did this. Now we don't know if people were holding rocks at this particular moment in time because the text doesn't tell us. But just by way of explanation and, and to create a visual in our minds, when we're talking about this idea of stoning someone because of their sin... The stones didn't involve the kind of stones that were on that gravel road, perhaps in front of your house when you were growing up. It wasn't stones like that. It was stones that were more like this, somewhere ranging in this size. Small enough that they could still be thrown, but big enough that they could really do some damage. And so for all we know, these guys, they were holding stones in their hands. Or maybe there was even someone going around and handing out stones so everyone had something. 
But they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. And according to Moses' law, she is to be stoned to death. And Jesus bends over and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger. And then after he does that for a little bit, he stands back up again and he says, He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then Jesus bends back down again and he starts writing in the dirt again. The passage of scripture tells us that one by one, they walked away. They dispersed, starting with the older ones. Pointing that out, the older ones were the first to kind of come to their senses and walk away. But eventually it involves all of them. If they were holding stones, I don't know, did they walk with the stones or did they just drop the stones? The scene possibly, it ends up just involving Jesus and this woman and maybe it was 15 stones laying there on the ground for all we know. But, but the, the real question in all of this that kind of has a way of finding its way to our mind is what was he writing on the ground? Was he just doodling? Or was he actually writing something? Some have suggested that he was writing people's names that were right there in the crowd. People that had used this woman's services in the past. It's possible. I mean, we're not told yes or no on that. Maybe Billy Graham used to say that it was his opinion what Jesus was doing was he was listing out the Ten Commandments. And he wasn't all the way through when he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he went back to finish out the Ten Commandments. I, I, yeah, I mean, you could see how it could be either one of those. But what we do know is that there came about a recognition within that crowd of people that they were sinners, that none of them was without sin. And so none of them actually were qualified based on what Jesus just said to throw the first stone. And so part of the, the, the teaching point that's found in that passage is that we are to take a look at ourselves before we start throwing stones at other people. And that includes whoever it is that hurts you, whoever it is that did whatever that was, you know, that betrayed you and hurt you or hurt you by hurting a loved one of yours. And before we start throwing rocks at them, we best take a good hard look at ourselves. It can be so easy to see the failings and the shortcomings in the lives of others and yet at the same time to be oblivious to what's going on in our own life because all of our attention is on the other person. Another place where we see something that basically drives home the same um, lesson is in Matthew chapter 7. And this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Jesus says this, he says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then, then he, in one of the key statements here, is uh, this statement. He says, why do you see the piece of sawdust in your brother's eye and not notice the wooden beam in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, 
Let me take out that sawdust out of your eye when the whole time there is a beam in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the beam out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the piece of sawdust from your brother's eye. Yeah, there, again, there's, there's a similar type of emphasis, a takeaway from this passage of Scripture. So Jesus says that we can, we can become so nitpicky with other people and we become blinded to what's going on in our own life personally. That it's almost like cartoon material. It almost, the whole image of it looks silly. That's basically what Jesus described here. If this passage does anything at all, it conveys that there is a tendency to ignore the issues in our own life while at the same time becoming obsessed with the shortcomings of other people around us. Is there a word for that? Yeah, there is a word. And it's a word that finds its way many times in Scripture. It's the word pride. That's what that is. Pride has a way of causing us to be blind to our own shortcomings, but to really center in and draw attention to the shortcomings of others around us. You know, when it comes to becoming merciful in the way that we view and treat other people, it's helpful if we spend some time looking in a mirror. And that's basically what both of these passages are saying in John chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 7 is we need to spend a little bit of time looking in a mirror so as to refresh our memory a bit. There's another example, again, um, a strong teaching of Jesus. It involved initially Peter approaching Jesus and asking a question. Here was the question. He said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus answered and said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Now Jesus is just playing on the number that Peter had used seven times. Peter actually probably felt he was being pretty generous, and the other disciples probably felt he was being pretty generous as well by suggesting seven times? Is that how many times I should forgive? The common teaching of rabbis in the, that day was three times. And then come the fourth time, you have no obligation to forgive someone who is wronging, wronging you. But uh, Peter kind of doubled that number and added one for good measure. And he said, seven times? And Jesus, just playing on the number, says, no, 70 times seven. There's nothing special about 490 times. I think part of the idea here is, well, if you're going to keep track, you'll lose track by the time you ever get remotely close to 490 times. And that's the whole point Jesus is making. Don't keep track. And then Jesus goes on and he tells a story. In verse 24 of that chapter, he talks about this king that is settling accounts with some of his servants. And he finds this one guy who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, I broke all of this down about 10 or 12 months ago in, in a message that I shared with you. So I'm not going to talk about how many denarii, which a denarii was a day's wage, how many denarii are in a talent, and then you do the math and all of this. I'll just cut to the chase on this. 10,000 talents, if you were an average, taking home an average take-home pay, would be the equivalent 
if you worked every day of having to work over 164,000 years to accumulate enough money to pay back 10,000 talents. I mean, this was a huge number. Call it however many millions you want to call it. But it was a humongous number that this guy didn't have any hope or, or uh, it wasn't realistic that he was ever going to be able to pay this back. Over 164,000 years worth of labor. And that's if he didn't buy any groceries along the way and use the money for other things. Yeah, the guy, there's no way he could have ever paid this back. But he pleads with the king and he says, have mercy on me and I'll pay back everything. The king does have mercy on him, and he forgives him. And that guy goes his way. Man, you would think his heart would be so swelled with gratitude, right? That's what you would think. But he hardly goes any distance at all. He bumps into another guy that owes him 100 denarii, which is just a little over three months' worth of money. That's a manageable debt. The guy doesn't have that kind of money to pay him back. He demands, pay me back what you owe me. And the guy, in a similar fashion to what he had previously done, is pleading with him, have mercy on me and I'll pay back everything. The guy isn't about to cut him any slack or have mercy on him, and he has him thrown into jail. Word gets back to the king, and the king is beside himself. And he calls this first guy in and says, what is going on? How did you get amnesia that bad? What did I just do for you? And then you wouldn't cut any slack for this other guy? And so the king revokes his canceling of the debt, his forgiveness. And now this guy's in a bad place. You know, the irony of, of that whole story is again, it's illustrating how much we have been forgiven by God, but yet how stingy we are at times in dispensing forgiveness of others. You, you could say in a manner of speaking that God has for, forgiven us, his mercy has been in, in ocean-sized quantities, but we use an eyedropper to dispense mercy toward others. Does that make any sense? Yet that is kind of a tendency among human beings. And that's what that passage is drawing attention to. All of these passages are bringing to light something that gets lost in our thinking. Whether it's John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Matthew chapter 7, the speck in the guy's eye. Or Matthew chapter 18, the 10,000 talent debt. You know, I'm not trying to in any way communicate that all sins are morally equivalent to one another. That, that is not, I'm not going there. I'm not even talking about that. But the truth of the matter is that not a one of us have any right to stand in judgment of others from a position of moral perfection, of of moral righteousness of having towed the line and never crossed the line. Not a one of us are qualified from that standpoint because we all have messed up and we've messed up royally. 
And we were singing about it earlier and, and Ben showed, you know, as far as the east is from the west is how far God has forgiven our sins. His mercy and grace is abundant and incredible. But we kind of get stingy when it comes to spreading that with others. So the first thing that we really need to do is we need to spend some time looking in the mirror and recognizing the fact that we are sinners we haven't lived perfect lives. We've messed up in some significant ways. Secondly, make a conscious decision to give up your right to get even. Now, it can be argued as to whether or not we really have the right to get even. Um, but that's not my point. The way people tend to see things is they think they have a right to get even. And, and so I'm kind of you know, approaching this from that standpoint. It's a perceived right. I think this perhaps is part of the reason why certain movies, you know, almost instantly become classic movies and they're really popular and get a big following. For example, The Punisher that came out, what was that, the original Punisher 15, 18 years ago or something involving Thomas Jane. Um, you, you remember that show? I mean, he becomes the hero in that show. But what actually is happening here? His family has been killed. And it's all about revenge. And you find yourself really cheering him on in that. Or, you know, which all of us have in our top five favorite movies of all time. Braveheart, right? You know, William Wallace and Braveheart. Okay, you know, we find ourselves cheering for him. But what sparked all of this with him, what he was doing? It was revenge. It was the death of his, I can't remember if it was his girlfriend or his wife. Maybe they had just gotten married. I, I can't recall that part of it. But that's not what I was focusing on. I was focusing on revenge because it's a very base thing within us. Or if you like the old westerns, then it'd be Charles Bronson, Once Upon a Time in the West. And I don't want to ruin it for you because you don't necessarily see it, you know, initially, but eventually it becomes abundantly clear it's all a movie. It's all about revenge with this guy. But you find yourself cheering for him all the way through. Gladiator, Russell Crowe, John Wick, Keanu Reeves, Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood. I mean, the list could go on and on. These are all movies that have revenge as their theme. And we find ourselves like, yeah, yeah. We feel a sense of satisfaction when there's revenge that is taken. But you see, forgiveness is letting go of that. I think this is at the very heart of forgiveness. Here's a good verse, Romans chapter 12 verse 19, and we're going to come back to this in just a couple of minutes, but um, verse 19 of this passage says, Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God, for he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. Don't take the law into your own hands. You see, as followers of Christ, this isn't something that we should be pursuing. God hasn't called us to be the chairman of our own vengeance committee you know, regarding whatever the situation is that invaded our life uninvited. 
Because of all the stuff associated with nursing a grudge and keeping score and replaying revenge scenarios in our mind over and over and over again, because of all the stuff associated with with all of that, it's inconsistent with what God is trying to create in our life as believers, as his children. Here's another passage that kind of echoes the Colossians 3.13 that I showed earlier. In Ephesians 4, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. All of those things can be tied, you know, to being hurt and being angry and vengeful towards someone. It says, get rid of all that kind of stuff, as well as all the types of evil behavior. Instead, this is what you're replacing it with. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Okay, so we need to initially, we we need to review, look in a mirror uh, at the fact that we too have fallen short. We have not lived a perfect life. We've done some things we're not proud of either. And we need to take a look in the mirror and be reminded of all that. Secondly, we need to make a conscious decision that we're going to give up our right, our perceived right of getting even with others. And then third and final. We need to start praying for the well-being of the other person, the person that's wronged us, the person that betrayed us. We need to start praying for their well-being. If possible, take action to do good to them. Now, we talked about part of this last Sunday, and I mentioned I was going to hit it again because, because it is very much ingrained in the whole concept of forgiveness. I found that the quickest way to change your attitude about someone is to regularly pray for their welfare. It's the quickest way to change your attitude about them. When the thought of them enters into your mind, pops into your mind, whether it's in the middle of the night at 1.30 in the morning or whether it's during that lunch break when you're sinking your teeth into that sandwich or, or all, when, when that thought enters into your mind, immediately turn that into a prayer. Let that serve as a trigger to lead you to prayer. And I want to tell you something. If you do that, and if you do that consistently, you're going to end up having thoughts, negative thoughts enter your mind less frequently than what they used to. And there's a reason for that. It's because Satan is backing off. Because the devil's the one who's behind temptation. The scripture makes that pretty clear. And the devil's not going to be about, if he sees that something that he is doing or his cronies are doing in bringing the temptation into your life, if he's seeing that that is consistently leading you to go to your knees in prayer, he's not going to want to encourage that. He's going to start backing off. And you're not going to find yourself struggling with with ill will and those kinds of thoughts and stuff as much. I think this is a practical method of, of uh, Paul, taking Paul's words, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Remember that in Colossians? Yeah, it's a great verse. It sounds great, but it's like, what does that mean? I mean, how do we do that? Well, I think this is an example of how we do that. We take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. If you have this thought of ill will, of, of thinking of ways to even the score, you know, to somebody who has hurt you. If, if you, you know, kind of regularly have those kinds of thoughts, 
invading your mind. And if you allow that to be a trigger to pray for their welfare, to pray for their benefit, to pray for this person's salvation, let's say, for example, or to pray for, for their happiness, that they'll have a good marriage or, or whatever. But you're praying something in regards to their welfare, and what you're going to be doing is you're taking that thought that has been consistently entering your mind before, and now it has been taken captive to obedience to Christ, and it's not going to be a thought that you're going to be struggling with near as much as what you did before. So let it serve as a trigger. Luke Chapter 6, this is something Jesus said that really speaks to all of this. He says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. This is the course of action we are to take. You say, well, I can't love my enemies. I mean, I just don't have those feelings like that. That word for love there has little of nothing to do with feelings. That is the word agape that is found in the text. And so it's, it's not emphasizing feelings. It's talking about love, the very same word that is used in talking about how the Lord loved us so much that he died for us. And Jesus didn't go to, cross, to the cross and get crucified because he thought, man, that will really feel great, you know. I, I can't wait. You know, I feel like this is going to be a lot of fun. That, that has nothing to do with why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because he cared so much for you. He put your interests before his own. It was a decision of the will that he made. And that's what this passage is talking about, is that we need to make a similar decision regarding our opponents, regarding the people that have kind of made a mess in our life that we're going to do good to them. We're not going to hate them. We're going to bless them. We're not going to curse them. We're going to pray for them. You may not feel naturally drawn toward that course of action, but you make that decision because that's what God's love does. Now, I told you I was going to go back to Romans chapter 12. In verse 19, what we read earlier, it was talking about the subject of revenge, and it was basically saying, leave that alone. That's God's department. That is not something for you to be messing around in. And then the next two verses go on to say, if your enemy is hungry. Now, who's he talking about when he says enemy? You look at the context, the person that hurts you that you were tempted to seek revenge on, okay? So if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? He says, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. If you do this, you will make him feel guilty and ashamed. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil with good. You know, when evil comes into your life, you don't respond with evil, but you respond with what's good. Forgiveness. It's only one of like 800 things that we're commanded uh, to do in the New Testament. But it can be a tough one. And today in this message, as we've been talking about all this, I would guess with a pretty good certainty that there's quite a number of us in here who've had a certain face of an individual or individuals come to mind. Someone that we've kind of harbored hard feelings against because 
they had wronged us. They had hurt a family member or something. And, uh, and we've harbored hard feelings against them. This subject's talking about people like that. In regards to your response. Yeah, this, this very much does deserve to be part of this series of messages of better relationships because uh, forgiveness will improve relationships across the board, whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be at work, whether it be under the roof of your house. As a matter of fact, there probably will be, and I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but there will probably will be an opportunity this week to apply this. Unless, of course, you're going to go straight home from here, not do any social media, not turn on the TV, not stick your head out the door. You're just going to be a total hermit all week, and you're living alone. You know, then you might be able to slip by this week with uh, not having an opportunity to apply this. But, but if you're going to get out and about, you're going to go to work, you're going to interact with other people then somebody's probably going to say something that you're going to find offensive. Somebody's going to, going to rattle your cage. You're going to, they're going to irritate you. And you'll have the opportunity to apply this and to do what's biblical. Just a couple things I want to clarify as I'm wrapping this up. When it comes to forgiveness, the issue is not, does this person deserve it? That is not the issue. Get that out of your head. For some reason, we use that sometimes to justify why we do not forgive people. That is not playing into this. That's not the issue. I mean, let me ask it this way. Do you deserve God's forgiveness for your sin? The answer, I mean, if you say, yeah, I do deserve it, then we got another conversation we need to have, you know, because you apparently don't understand this concept of pride. And how strongly God speaks to that. We don't deserve to be forgiven. Um, and whoever it is that wronged you in whatever way that they wronged you, uh, whether or not they deserve it, that's beside the point. And, and the other thing is that the tendency is for us at times to think, you know, along the lines, that I don't feel like forgiving so and so. I can't forgive them because I don't feel like forgiving them for what they did. And my response to that is, yeah, that's, that's not surprising. Most times you won't feel like it. But whoever said that this is being generated by feelings? Forgiveness runs so contrary to our sense of fairness that it's unlikely we will ever feel like forgiving others. But in the Bible, forgiveness is never presented as a feeling. It's always portrayed as a decision because it's the right thing to do. So might God be pleased with what he sees in our life as we take these concepts and this command. It's only one of 800, but we take this command seriously because it's a significant one. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity for us to look at something that uh, 
uh, kind of hits it's close to home. Father, you know full well of our lives and the different things we've experienced in life. And you know full well that there are some that are in this room that have been hurt and the wounds are still raw. And Father, I pray that your spirit, you will give the grace and the strength to be able to rise up, to be Christ-like even in the middle of, of those kind of circumstances. Father, we want our lives to glorify you. And certain teachings that are found in the Bible, we have no problem with. We take them and we run with them. But other ones, in a practical way, are a little harder. In principle, great, but practically speaking, regarding so-and-so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would rule our life through your spirit, that you would prompt and lead us in such a freeing way that we'll be able to experience what a victorious Christian life really is like and that we'll be able to discover firsthand how freeing it is you know, to follow your word. And I pray that to your glory, but I also pray that so, so that we all can be reminded that you've always had our best interests in mind all along, including in this area. Say in Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.